This episode is brought to you by RBH Drums. RBH is a Virginia Beach, Virginia-based company that specializes in classic kind of old-school style drum shells. They have the Monarch series, which are three-ply mahogany poplar mahogany with solid maple reinforcement hoops. That's available in snare drums and drum sets. They also have the Prestige series snare drum line, which are solid steam-bent drums made out of different timbers. And then most recently, they put out the Westwood series, which is the series that I will be using at my PASIC clinic uh, in a couple of weeks here. And that is a three-ply shell mahogany poplar mahogany without reinforcement hoops. So if you're going to PASIC this year, I'll be using those drums. You can come check them out in person. If not, go to rbhdrumsusa.com to check them out. All right, let's get started. Man, it's good to be back. How are you doing, buddy? Welcome home. I'm all right. Thank you. Thank you. So when did you get home? Because it is currently Friday. When did you get home? I got, um, I think, late, late, late Wednesday night. So yesterday was like my first day home. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, shaking off the dust. As you can hear in my voice, I've got a little bit of, uh, well, we can't call it namthrax, but uh, <laughs> trade show-itis. Oh, a trade show yeah, I guess you were getting a lot of random handshakes. Hugs, yeah. And man, you know, like Amber every time and everybody else, they're like, you should just give fist bumps. And I'm like, are you freaking nuts? Do you know what I've set myself up for online? Like, I'm everybody's friend. They don't even come <laughs> in with a hand. They, they put their arms around me. Like, it's a full-blown hug, and I love it. I really do. I truly dig it until I'm on the plane going, huh, throat's a little scratchy. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> I've been eating airborne like it was candy. Especially but, uh, in a different country, too. All kinds of different germs. Oh, let me tell you this. <laughs> let me tell you this. Did you happen to see the video I posted of the guy dancing during my clinic? That I did see. What was okay. that all about? So, just a free spirit, I'll tell you that. He bought just a ticket a free just spirit. to get down and boogie at a drum clinic? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and most of the time he was wearing a snare drum on his waist like a like a Continental soldier. What? So anyways, <laughs> dude was just a free spirit. Well, right after my clinic, I by the way, I didn't see the dancing, obviously, until I saw it online. I mean, I was a little busy playing. But right after my clinic, we go to a coffee shop uh, with some of the Mike's Lessons family members and just people where it's like, you know what, that high-pressured thing that I've been training for for the last six months is finally over. Can I go sit down with some friends away from all of this? So I go sit down with some Mike's Lessons family members, um, and we're having tea and coffee. Got my green tea. All's good. And that dude walks in and locks eyes with me. I'm like, here it comes. <laughs> and he beelines it over, and he goes, hey, do you mind if I sit down while he grabs a chair and sits down? I was like, yeah, cool, man. Whatever. All good. Now, I'm a little perturbed only because I don't get to see the people that I'm sitting with very often. These are people that have been to camps um, and people that I truly, truly love. So I was like, oh, man, this is like my special time. But whatever. You seem like a nice guy. Mm -hmm. You took your snare drum off. So I know he's not going to rip chops at the table. (laughs) So we're talking. Everything's cool. Uh, It actually was really cordial. And then finally we get up and I'm like, okay, well, uh, I'm going to go upstairs and take a little rest. And I leave, and as I leave, uh, I take a drink of my tea, and it's not my tea. It's his coffee. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> you have no yeah. idea where that mouth has been. <laughs> Bro, I mean, even though it shouldn't matter if it was just some hot supermodel chick, it would have been a little easier to handle. 
So now I don't know if you know, but I've never tasted coffee in my life. I've never had a drink of what? coffee. No kidding. Yeah. So well, anything that has a vice to it, I've never tried. <laughs> so it hits my mouth and I know, I don't know what this is, but it's not my tea. And so I just hold it in my mouth for like 20 seconds until I can make it away from people, open the <laughs> lid, drain my mouth, scratch my tongue. I'm like, ugh. No rough times. Way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm assuming I might have picked up a cold from that guy. Oh, and who knows? Maybe I should hit the clinic and get a shot of penicillin. But that anyways, dude was cool. He was super nice. So that that was that. It, it was, uh, yeah, it was fun. Man. Wait, did he walk out with your tea then? He probably did. And he was probably as disappointed as I was. Or maybe he was stoked. Maybe he's like, the elixir of, of drumming. Um, but so yeah. weird. I think, we were, I think we were both highly disappointed. So strange. So strange. Yeah. What can you do? Well, so, I mean, it takes, takes all different kinds, right? <laughs> hey, I, I straight up posted this video on the Mike's Lessons family page, and I said, I, I literally said, if you make fun of this, you will be kicked off the site. This dude is so free and such a free spirit. I don't think it would be a bad idea to have a little bit more of this in our lives. Maybe not that much. Yeah. He took it to the extreme, but we all are—we all spend a little bit too much time caring about what other people think. So the question uh, everyone so, wants to know: yeah. How were his mm. snare drum chops? <laughs> Do well. The, here's the thing: I only got to see him air drum. Oh, bro, it doesn't even end there. Let me tell you this one about this cat. I'm getting ready to go to dinner with Benny and uh, Richard Spaven and the Minel guys, and we're standing in this lobby waiting for everybody to get there. I'm standing with Benny and Richard, and we're just chatting. And I, I was—I hadn't met Richard until this point so we're all just chatting and he once again walks in he must have been staying at the same hotel walks into the lobby locks eyes and beelines it straight for me i'm like oh no now i kind of look up to benny and richard a little bit so i'm like not now not now (laughs) but at the same time i like being cool to everybody and this guy's really kind and really nice so he goes hey mike put your hands up in the air and he literally throws his hands and i'm like Nah, I'm good, man. And he's like, no, no, this is a great exercise for getting relaxed. And I was like, I'm pretty relaxed. And he's like, Mike, you got to put your hands in the air for five minutes. And I'm like, for five minutes? Yeah. And he was going to walk me through this whole breathing exercise. So it's just that balance of, I mean, maybe you deal with it more in New York than I do. (laughs) But I'm not used to like, it's like, we kind of, you know, I don't know. It it was tough because it's like, I want to show you some love, bro. I want to let you know that I'm there for you. But I'm in front of two of my idols right now. I'm not going to put my hands in the air and do a breathing exercise with you for five minutes. we got to go get some dinner. So so anyways, needless to say, that was some unique stuff. Then there were beautiful moments, uh, like Toby getting up on stage and playing one of my band's songs. Yeah. That was bananas. So, okay. So, backstory. How does a audience member, a teenager, end up on stage right. playing your drums and playing one of your songs? How does that happen? So... I was do- we had to do like um, autograph sessions or signing sessions during the day, mm-hmm. and I was doing one um, the day that I was going to be playing. And I saw Toby, and he came through the autograph line. And he's like, "Hey, I'm the guy that covered your song on Instagram because I had commented on it like months and months ago." Okay, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Gave him a huge hug, and then it just hit me. I was like, "Do you want to play it today?" And he's like, "What?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah. Like you should come <laughs> up on stage and play it before I do." So. Uh, he was, and he's just—he's just a sweet, sweet kid, and he—he he looked just excited, and, uh, and but it, it didn't even occur to me what that would put on him as far as nerves and all that stuff. Yeah, right. Um, 
And uh, but yeah, so and then I th- as soon as he left, I mean, you're in a chaotic autograph signing, and you're about to. I had to go on stage 30 minutes after the signing to go do sound check, and then I was on, and I was thinking, I'm gonna forget. I'm gonna forget that this conversation ever took place. The kid's gonna sit there with a knot in his stomach for all hour of my clinic, and then I'm not gonna call him up. So I set alarms on my phone to remind me myself to bring him up, mm-hmm. and then uh, I wrote a. I wrote a note on my snare drum that said, Toby, you've got this. You're going to kill it, bro. Just so when he did get on stage, he knew that like I was thinking about him. And uh, yeah, so he came up. The song's in 7-8. He has no click because he's just playing through like the wedge. You know, I have my in-ears. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have that. He just walks up on on stage. There's a thousand people in this room that he's just seen Benny Greb and Stanton Moore and Richard Spaven playing. And I pressed the space bar, and he went in and just absolutely killed it. It was so cool. That, so cool. I mean, I would have said thanks, but no thanks. If, if you right. would have said that to me, Everyone even at this age. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. damn near 40, and I'd be like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> I did. Carter said, you should come down and jam with me and uh, uh, Charlie. And I was like, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> I'm not sitting in with Charlie Hunter after you play. No, I'm good, man. Are you nuts? So, uh, so, yeah, so it was really cool. And then, I mean... What was really cool was he actually wasn't the one affected by it, which was obviously the intent. Obviously, he's going to have this little moment, and he'll have it for the rest of his life. He'll play drums forever. Everything's good. The real goal was I want a 1,000 people in that crowd to be sweating for him. I want Mm. them to feel what it's like to be in that position. I want them to put themselves in his situation and go through it physically. And he told me, because I saw him after the show was over, he was like, dude, I couldn't go anywhere without people talking to me. They just, they were all so proud <laughs> of me awesome. and they, they said they were more nervous than I was. And he's like, I, I went to the bathroom and people talked to me in the bathroom. I was like, that's so cool, man. <laughs> so yeah, his name's Toby Brownstone. Um, really good, really good dude. And uh, really good drummer too. He did a great job. So mm-hmm. that was fun. Wonder if a uh, snare drum man grabbed him and did the five minute uh, hand over your head exercise. It could have been. Maybe that's why he was so relaxed. See? See? But yeah, it was great, man. It was so nice to have. I remember getting off the stage, and now we can actually talk about stuff that we all relate to. Got done. Had my you know kind of lunch and hang time with my friends. And as soon as that was done, I went up to the hotel room, sat down, and for the first time in a really long time in a situation like that, there was nothing I wish I could go back and make better. I was mm, so cool. satisfied. Uh, and that's, I think, something you and I have been chasing for a long time is I don't need to be better than Benny or Stanton or anyone. I just, you know, I mean, dude, Greg Hutchinson was the guy before me. Yeah. What are you supposed to do after that? Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's like, I don't need to be better than Greg Hutchinson. I just need to not hate myself when this is over. I need to be as good as I can be. And literally, I got off that stage and called Amber. And she's like, how are you doing? I'm like, I don't hate myself at all. This is the best feeling. I'm not, you know, I'm not thinking like, oh, I'm the man. I'm just thinking this is nice to not be sad. (laughs) (laughs) All right. It's so so crazy. We we all go through it. What was it? Was it a a feeling of relaxation, of comfort with what you were teaching? Was it just experience giving clinics for so many years? I mean, what do you think did it? You know, I think preparation first. Um, But that being said... I changed my clinic all if everything except for the performance because I was playing three songs. So those stayed the same, but everything else about my clinic I changed the morning of the clinic. So really? I scrapped what I'd been practicing for 3 months now I scrapped. Why? Yeah, so okay. 
so I got there a day before on Saturday. I performed on Sunday, and that was very purposeful. I wanted to see how this thing was going. So I went in there on Saturday. I watched Stanton Moore's clinic, mm-hmm. and Stanton is a professional clinician, obviously a professional player, but he does a lot of clinics. I wanted to see how the crowd reacted to him. I checked out the lighting. What's the lighting like? If they keep the lights on on the crowd, well, then the crowd's not going to be very open to laughing because everyone can see them. They're not going to be very open to getting deep because everyone can see them. But if they dim the lights in the house and keep the lights on the stage, people are generally a little bit more open to things. So I sat front row for Stanton. Watch that. And Stanton is a very... I don't even know how to say it, but like a clinical clinician. He just does his thing. Yeah, It's yeah. not a lot of banter, not a lot of improv. He's just going to do it, and he nails it every time. And he did. Then I went to Benny Greb's clinic. Now we get half stand-up, half drumming, mm-hmm. half in, you know, with a sprinkle of inspiration. And I really noticed, like, okay, the crowd is a little more willing to laugh. So you know, one thing you never know is I'm in a foreign country. I don't know what the audiences are like here. So I was observing that. Then when Benny was done, got up on the stage, they cleared the room, got up on the stage. I took pictures of the room from the drum riser, and that's what I knew that I was going to be staring at at night when I went to sleep. I would just look at those pictures and imagine the situation. And then I went to a third clinic, which was amazing, but so amazing. I can't remember who it was, Um, (laughs) but man, it was good. Um, Is it Josh Dion? Well, I saw Josh the next day. Anyways, I saw a third clinician, and it was somewhere in between vibe-wise Benny and Stanton. I mean, Benny definitely had the biggest crowd of the entire week. You know, it was, I mean, it's freaking Benny Grab, and it, he was incredible. Uh, so anyways, so I just realized, no, my clinic topic's not going to work. It's way too deep. It's more of a master class, mm-hmm. and this crowd is too big. I would – and it, it you almost have to be on – you would have to be in a private lesson with me or in a small group with me to experience the benefit of it. And so I just scrapped all of it and went to my hotel room that night, woke up in the morning. I was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to go for this other thing. And, uh, and it ended up working out great. But the other thing was highly prepared as well. But I I think the biggest thing really was getting over the fact, I mean, it's, it go it goes all back to, oh, Russ Miller was the other one I saw. And it goes back to Russ Miller, just like saying like, dude, Benny's here. You don't need to be Benny. Jojo's here. You don't need to be Jojo. Yeah. Um, I will say this, though. JoJo tuning his kit backstage. We, our risers were next to each other, and we were both setting up. Him messing around on his kit is who I'd like to be when I grow up. <laughs> oh, my God, that guy's good. He was just, like, tapping things, and it sounded better than I'll ever sound. Unreal. Ugh. And I was probably for a good hour less than five feet away from him. Never said hello. Uh, yeah, yeah. He gets into I, his I just, own thing, yeah. Yeah, I mean both of us. I was just like, I'm not, I'm not gonna let, I'm not gonna let it be ruined. I, I really look up to you. You're one of my few heroes left that I haven't met and I don't know. And uh, yeah, and I mean, at, after you do say hello, where do we go from there? Like, you seen any of my, of my Instagram posts lately? Yeah, no, well, you definitely right. don't want to talk drum nerd stuff backstage oh. at a drum clinic. So no, that's the funniest thing, man. No one talks drumming there. Yeah. Any, I mean, none of the drummers do. Like. It's anything other than. But I had a great time hanging out with Hutch. Uh, he was epic. I did see Carter while he was there. He uh, met him uh, oh, over right. at a bar, and we just hung out for a bit. So that was cool. It was it was an amazing thing, and most importantly, uh, I just felt good when I got off stage. And then I took that with me to Bath, did a clinic there. They had a nice sold-out theater. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Bath, England, but... Nope. I never left it, the United it, States, dude. Really? Yeah. No, I looked at Canada. I've looked at Mexico. <laughs> You are, you are a special little peach. Yeah. Um, well, 
<laughs> uh, let me tell you this. First of all, Bath is in now my top three places I'd like to live if oh, cool. I could afford it. Uh, but last thing before we move on, I can't even tell you how popular this podcast is in the UK. I couldn't go anywhere without somebody mentioning something about yeah, the, like the podcast or Dawson or I mean, they know everything about us. It's crazy. Sweet. Well, maybe we need to do a little UK tour. <laughs> I agree. Oh my gosh! Could you imagine how rad that would be if you and I could do a clinic tour that starts? Come on early. Come on out early. We'll do an hour podcast and then we'll do the clinic. Oh, it'd be so much fun! Oh, yeah, make it happen. I, I mean, I need to get a passport. <laughs> oh my god, bro! Every time you know I what? tell somebody that, are you a felon? Like, what is your what is your deal? I know that I know that you're about to like play PASIC, which is a massively huge <laughs> honor for a clinician, but I will never, I'm not going to categorize you as a clinician until you have a passport. <laughs> that or is even awesome. a rational human being. I mean. Yeah, yeah. that's all right. That's all right. You know what? I will say this. For how little you've traveled the world, you're pretty well-rounded, dude. Well, I've seen this uh, country top to bottom, and that's, I mean. There you go. That's you, enough. I think living in West Virginia for, in a trailer park for four and a half years and then living in Center City, Philadelphia, I don't think you can get any more extreme than that. <laughs> Dude, you've seen, you've seen, okay. All right. Well, it all makes sense now. It all makes sense. Oh, man. So well, Welcome into our, our podcast. <laughs> How about that intro? How about that intro? Oh, man. 15 more quarter way through. We haven't even talked about John Talley's beat. We should dig it. So yeah, I want to make an announcement because we've been doing all these intro beats and everyone's sending their gear list. That's awesome. Um, if you can give me a little something else, like what you know, what's the inspiration behind your beat? Um, when, you know, whatever. Who's your favorite drummers or just something more about what you're doing? That'd be cool. But anyway, John is playing a Ludwig kit. He's got some agop um, and minor cymbals. Um, it's got the uh, the old classic Acrolyte snares, some Shure mics, biodynamic overheads, Studio Project One C1 microphone, which I've never tried. And he made the loop in Logic, which I do almost every day. So I think, again, Logic Pro, if you don't have it, if you have a Mac, get it, because you can make loops in seconds, and it can sound like full tracks. Um, a lot of nice. my... Uh, not a lot, but a handful of my Instagram posts recently have been just using Apple Loops and just remixing them and cutting them up. And it sounds like I spent like a week producing a track. It's And it took like really? two minutes to do. Um, so definitely check it out. But anyway, that was John That's Tally. Awesome. Thank you for your beat. So Great should we job. actually uh, talk about the real stuff? Oh, I wanted to, yeah, uh, I wanted oh, to talk boy. about the track that I just did. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So a... a old friend of mine slash mentor slash my favorite composer uh darren dyke he uh he moved to belgium but he's been he's over there he's a steel drum tuner that's kind of his main gig but he's also a really amazing musician and composer so every once in a while he'll send me tracks and he sent me one over the weekend to do um and it was maybe the most challenging yet fun thing i've ever done um he basically sent me the the program drums like instrument by instrument and he wanted me to record them like that like i don't want any cymbals i don't want any crashes i want the hi-hat to be completely separate from the snare drum from the kick drum from the toms so he wow. could then you know mix them more like an edm track it's very much an edm sounding ambient thing so it was really challenging i had to transcribe note for note the parts 
and so really? I had like full charts of each instrument that I had to just play top to bottom, and it was it was pretty darn fun. So different than a normal session. Yeah, and, and the the biggest thing was matching the tones. So I'd, like the hi hats had to go through and find which hi hats have the exact same pitch as what he programmed, and so I ended up using a little pair of tens and a pair of thirteens, and then I had um, eight inch bass drum just stuffed full of blankets, so it just was like a a complete thud and then right snare drums was the most interesting i had two of these um and they're called jingle snares they're like single-headed snare drums with with jingles in the shell yeah yeah. Uh, dixon makes them lp makes them toka makes them i had two of those and those were like the perfect kind of sampled snare drum sound so one was tuned to one pitch and one to the other and then i had concert toms which i'd love to use so those were kind of wow. like the the melodic. Are they actual concert toms, or yeah, they're or did you old, just take the bottom heads off? Seventies Slingerlands concert toms, yeah, yeah, and they sound awesome. Nice. I got a ton of tape on them, and they just sound like marching bass drums. Um, and I put some distortion on them, so they kind of sound like African toms or something like that. So anyway, I wanted to drop in just a little bit of the audio, so you can kind of see the result. Um, so you'll hear this is just a rough mix, but it's pretty close. You can hear the. You know, my parts are layered in with just a little bit of digital drums, but most of what you hear is actually the live drums uh, dropped in. So let's check it out. Okay, so let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. First of all, that's amazing that that's even real drums. You I mean, it's it's kind of funny. Like your Instagram world has kind of started to turn into, well, Mike could do it. Yeah, you right. know what I mean. Like you've shown <laughs> them what you're into, and I, I've been I've been really starting to think about that a lot, especially for my students who are trying to figure out this world of social media. And I'm starting to think the best thing that you can do in social media is show the world what you're into, because people will hire you for that because they know. Like, I know I could call you and be like, hey, Mike, can you do this country gig for me? Yes, you could do it. But are you as into it as, you know, Rich Redmond? No. Right. Well, why don't I call the guy that's into yeah, it? Yeah. And you're showing the world what you're into. And you're saying, look, I don't even care if you like it. This is what I'm into. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's people that make that kind of music. <laughs> and he found you and asked you to record on it. And I bet you had a blast. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've had quite a few gigs come up that way. And, and I, I probably would get more work if i did play country like supernatural grooves on my instagram but i i definitely right. think of for me instagram is my electronic business card it, this is Absolutely. this is where my head's at right now and then i've gotten students who want to do that kind of thing and i've gotten you know right. this kind of work i mean i've known darren since the 90s but i think it was him seeing me do these just weird videos he's like you know i'm working on this project i wasn't going to use live drums but i think you could do it so here's the track yeah, I totally agree. I think it's it's awesome. Now, here's the thing that I still don't understand, and and maybe we would actually have to ask Darren. How different does what you – so you said you transcribed everything. How different does it sound with your live drums versus what he originally sent you in the first place? I mean, is there a reason to record live drums? Yes. And, I mean, okay. I, I tried to match at least the pitches in the basic timbre as close as I possibly could. So – so when he opens it up, it's not like a like a whole new mix. It's still relatively right. the same, um, and I mean, so that was important. But it's the little things like 
when you listen to his demo, it's just a loop that goes for like 36 bars. Okay. And I'm not playing fills, but, you know, the hi-hat's going to be slightly more open every once in a while. And I might actually throw in, I did throw in a couple open hi-hat notes, like at the end of eight-bar phrases. Little things that as a programmer, you might do, but you probably aren't going to take the time to do that. Like get a right. partially open hi-hat note in bar six, you know, little things right, like right, that. Right. So it was mostly so, that. So you gave it life. Yeah, and I added one little tiny little fill at the end of the song. So instead of the right. loops just cutting cold, I just did a four and a to end the track. And that just gave okay. it enough of a human element, I think, to make it uh, a little bit more interesting f- listening experience. Right. Yeah, I, I would love to know from him what his experience was after already creating all this and having it in his mind and then hearing someone play it. Does he open it and go, yeah, that's cool? Or does he open it and go, that was the missing piece. That's, you know? that's um, what he said. And now I will go back really cool. a couple of weeks ago when I did a similar thing for someone else and I took a much more live approach. So I actually performed okay. all the parts. It was still multiple hi-hats and just crazy stuff. But I made it a challenge. Like, can I play the tune 100% live? Okay. And I think it shocked him. It was like, eh, it's cool, but it sounds a little too live. That was that was the oh, wow. that was the comment I got. Okay. I was like, okay, well, I thought that's what you wanted. I wasn't thinking just bring in subtle live elements i actually just played the song where he actually wanted to sound more like a program bit that had some things that he couldn't you can't possibly program like little nuances and stuff sure so i learned my lesson from that that was fun he really dug it he was appreciative but it didn't actually make the final cut he ended up just grabbing a couple little things i added like a, a marching snare drum overdub and stuff okay but in this case, it was like, all right, well, I'm going to just do each piece by piece. So so the audio itself, there's no bleed. Everything is super clean. It's going to sound like he just opened up a drum machine sample. Right. But there's going to be little things that, that are going to surprise him. Tiny little that's cool. things. Tiny little things. I love it. I think that's awesome. Good lesson for all of our students that <clears throat> there's still a reason. I mean, I remember you know we all went through the drum machine thing yeah. when we were teenagers going like, yeah, I guess drummers are going to die. It's like, what? Right. No one's going to die. <laughs> This instrument's been around. It's like the first instrument. I mean, people doing this in tribes. Awesome. All right. Well, let's get into something. By the way, congrats. That sounded amazing, bud. Seriously. Yeah. So once it's out, I'm sure I can share the actual link to it and all. But I wanted to just, I was just so stoked to hear it come back this morning. Like, ah, it it worked. Finally, it worked. (laughs) That's really cool. That's really cool. All right. Well, let's talk about some educational stuff. Talking about essential symbol patterns from our boy, Powell Randolph. Um, why did my mouth stop working for his name? I just <laughs> Paul Randolph. Uh, and do you know where he's from? Is he a U.S. drummer? He is. He's down in Virginia. Cool. Very cool. I'm going to check. I mean, I saw the video of him playing this lesson, but obviously that's very lesson based. He's not improvising or anything. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, the whole premise of it is, is kind of what I think every studied drummer does at one point is you you play patterns with the kick and the snare and then you throw in a whole bunch of different ride stuff on top yeah to create you know endless variations of the same same kind of root groove yeah for sure um so and this is kind of relates to the things that you know that i've been working on for this this clinic run of of things so for for basic i don't think i'm going to get into the independence improv games that i do but when I have longer time periods, I'm going to split it up between the first half is on sticking games and challenges, and the second half is on independence games and nice. challenges. And this is kind of what I do, 
is I just zero in on what are the what are the most crucial ride parts. Let's not worry about right. super difficult, super insane, challenging, right. independent stuff. Can you be completely free with one, two, and three limbs over quarter notes? Can you be completely free with one, two, or three limbs over eighth notes, sixteenth notes? Right. Upbeats. Upbeats. But I stop at sixteenths for this. But there are definitely other ones that uh like one I never do and I every time I try to do it, I screw it up, is the is one E and two E and. Do you think that's just because of all of your time playing one and a either swung or straight? Hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, it's, it's, it's never. There's nothing that's actually difficult. There's only things you haven't done as much as other things. Yeah, it just feels that's backwards. It. So I just don't do it. Even though you know, I know the one that I certain like samba styles, that is the appropriate way to do it. But I'm, I can't. I have to go to the the jazz version of it. Do you ever do the thing where you start da da ding da da ding da da ding and then? Without even knowing it, it's ding, da, da, ding, and you're like, "Holy crap! I flipped it. I wasn't <laughs> yeah, even present always. for that." <laughs> yeah, and it really worst, gets dude. me on the high hat if I'm doing like open, open and closed, but it's uh, yeah. you know, two closed and an open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just yeah. can't. I can play it in a beat, but to like improvise around that, mm-hmm. forget about it. The one that I just have never been able to do, and I I understand it's just hours. I'm just missing the hours, but I I think I've just never been able to get myself to put in the hours on it. Is the 16th, 8th, 16th. 1E, a 2E, a 3E, yeah. a 4E. Man, I, I mean, it's like I can't play drums as soon as that pattern shows up. And I've heard Will Kennedy play that and put the bell on the E. Da-ding, da-ding, oh, da-ding, da-ding. That's funny. I was going to say, I, when I, the only time I can make that work is if I think of it starting on the uh, a 1E, a 2E, a 3E, a 4E, oh, right, right. a 1E, a 2E. Yeah, man. I mean, it, it's just that one's always been tough for me, but it's just it's just ours. And I, looking at Pal's article, the one thing that I really love is he didn't go in and try to play the craziest kick and snare pattern. Uh, it would, you know, it's just a nice boom, cha, boom, cha, right, one, yeah, two, and four. Um, and what I usually try to tell my students is, okay, what is what are the core elements of the groove? And the core elements, if if you think of a non drummer dancing. To this groove, does the non-drummer ever dance to the hi hat and move their head going? No, unless it's like a disco thing on the off feet, they might right catch that. Might, but still, even then, I mean, if you ask them to clap, they're not going to clap on those open hi hats. They're going to clap on kick and snare. If they're like me, Caucasian, they'll clap on the kick and the snare. If if they actually have any rhythm in their body, they'll clap on the snare. So, it's one of those things where. If you think of it like that, that cannot be messed with. That is our constant. And then our variable is the hi-hat. And we bring in the variable as quarter notes. And that, to me, besides the texture that we'll put in later, that's what's affecting the feel. Yeah. If I, yeah. You know, somebody said, I'm, I think subdivisions are something that this article really shows, which is when somebody says, hey, I just need it to drive a little bit more, I usually will look at my hi-hat and think, oh, you know what? I'm just give, I'm I'm playing eighth notes, but I'm giving you that quarter note accent. So really, I could just accent all eight notes, or I could switch to a sixteenth note subdivision. Without changing the tempo, you're going to feel by having more note density that we're moving faster. Yeah. But we're not. We're at the same tempo. That's yeah. And that this really works. shows that, that really works, and it's such a subtle thing that it's so easy to overlook. Like I think you begin right. to a habit of everything has to be shoulder tip, shoulder tip, shoulder tip, right? Yeah, yeah. That has a certain quarter note kind of slog to it. And yeah. As soon as you start emphasizing happy. all of them, it becomes like, 
I it drives. It, yeah, it's more of a punk rock, or even Steve Jordan does that all the time. It just makes it yeah. just really kind of relentless. It's fun, you know. And the, and the other thing is, this is a, something I talk to the campers about. When they say that, the, you know, like, ah, sometimes my guitarist rushes a bit or drags a bit, I always tell them, I promise you, on that stage, your guitarist is having a really hard time hearing your kick and snare just because of our frequencies, but your hi-hats will cut right through the mix. So just for a second, bring those hi-hats up and accent the hell out of all of them and let them hear the time, and then you can bring slowly bring it back down. I mean, they cut through the mix a lot better than kick and snare. Because people just keep hitting their kick drum harder and harder. I'm like, dude, your bass player has two 810 fridges ampegs. You're not cutting through. No one can hear you. And all that massive kick happens from the front of house PA. So, like, that's not on the stage. Yeah. So, anyway, the kick drum isn't, a, isn't really laying down the time unless you're playing four on the floor anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't switch to four on the floor just to get your guitar player back on track. Sometimes I have, you know, with some students and myself, when I'm doing these type of exercises where you're playing the same kick and snare and changing the ride pattern, mm-hmm. at least for me and a lot of people I've witnessed, there's a lot a very um, common tendency to kind of forget about the dynamics of the kick and the snare. And, and it mm-hmm. kind of becomes because you start obsessing over what the thing that changed. So I think right. I, I caution everyone when they're practicing this stuff. The kick and the snare should be strong. Whatever dynamic you're at, don't change it. And then can you change the ride part without that uh, without it, that impacting where the kick and snare are at all? That's way Absolutely. more difficult than I think anyone expects the first time they do it. Yeah, absolutely. Is, I always have my students on that exact exercise. I make them when I when I'm telling that when they say, "How do I know that I've got it?" I always tell them, "Go back to the straight eighth notes, the one that you're most comfortable with." If it doesn't feel, even in your body, not even just sound, but if it doesn't feel exactly like that, then you still have more work to do. Right. I yeah. shouldn't be playing straight eights, feel good, and then go to... It shouldn't be that. It should be a seamless transition. And these are the things that, if you aren't already doing this, and if you guys haven't seen the article, what we're talking about is you have a very standard kick and snare pattern. You start with quarter notes. Then eighth notes, then maybe just the upbeats, one and two and three. Then sixteenth notes single handed, then sixteenth notes double handed, then eighth followed by two sixteenths, two sixteenths followed by an eighth. Those are the standards. Go through those because that's once myself and a singer songwriter have decided on our constant, the kick and snare pattern, then I go through those variables and I just wait for their eyes to light up and they go, That, do that. I'm like, mm. cool. Now do you want it here? Do you want it on the rack tom rim? Do you want it on my ride symbol? And we just kind of narrow it down like that. And and generally, in most music, unless you're playing some really artistic fusion stuff, one of those is going to work. Yeah, right. Yeah, you don't need yeah. to like reinvent what you're doing. Just go through yeah, some Yeah, you don't have to do that. Morris Day in the Time, uh, <laughs> 890, that with the David Garibaldi one, 357. You know, you don't have to play an eight-bar hi-hat solo. Um, so, yeah, I think that stuff's great. So everyone, check out... Uh, Powell Randolph's article it's just called Essential Symbol Patterns it is in the current issue of Modern Drummer yep yep boom do we have a sponsor we is do it time we've to got talk? to uh, it is let's thank our sponsor RBH Drums is sponsoring this episode and they're going to be sponsoring one more leading up to PASIC because they are going to be at PASIC and they want to make sure that everyone knows who's attending that they're going to be there exhibiting and they're going to be providing me with my instruments for the clinic 
Um, it's going to be a Westwood series drum set, which is a three-ply mahogany poplar shell without reinforcement ho- reinforcing hoops. Their Monarch series is the same shell, but it has reinforcement hoops. So this is a three-ply shell, no reinforcement hoops. Um, nice. They're building one with champagne sparkle finish, which is amazing looking. And I'm going to be playing the smaller setup. So it's a 14 by 20 bass drum, 14 by 14 floor tom, 8 by 12 rack tom. And I think he's actually going to be bringing some of his solid prestige series snare drums. So I'm sure I'll be smashing on one of those. Uh, So, yeah, they'll be at the show. I want to make sure I thank them for supporting my clinic, supporting the show. And if you're going to be at PASIC, the exact setup that I'm going to be hitting Thursday morning will be in his booth all weekend. So you can mess around with it. Nice. And I have to say, our campers always freak out over that modern drummer, that 13, oh, uh, yeah. the cherry one. Yeah. And they made that's that. him, right? Yep. That's that's a RDH yeah. made drum. Yep. Every time we do our little snare drum test on the last day where we go through like 15 different snares and play them back to back, that one always gets a ton of oohs and ahs. It's, it's an amazing drum. So yep. I'm a huge fan. Special all right. Well, let's talk about somebody that is all about playing quiet uh, very into hot rods. Big fan of the brushes. <laughs> brushes, he uh, is a big is, fan of. But no, hot no, rods. I, I don't doubt it. <laughs> well, I'm sure he wouldn't even just be able to get hot rods out of his mouth. He would say he'd probably say bundle sticks. Uh, but, yeah, uh, right. But JP Gasser, uh, somebody that I've known not personally, but known of because my band was in that kind of scene. But they were they were there before us, mm-hmm. and and they're still there way after us, and way after almost everybody else. I would say. Clutch and the Deftones are probably the two from that era that are still going strong and not holding on to something from the past. They're still currently going strong. Yeah, I think killing it. I think they get cooler the longer they go, and that's that's so rare. You mm-hmm. know, there's no sense of them kind of petering out and just you know playing just playing through their catalog just because they got a gig. I mean, it's every record they're right. trying something new. Uh, JP's on the cover of the current issue November. I had the good fortune to go down to the Clutch Warehouse slash rehearsal studio and interview him in person. Nice. Which was also really cool to see because we think Clutch is probably this big machine with all these employees and people working for them. JP is the one fulfilling orders. I mean, he's him and his wife wow. essentially run their record label out of their warehouse. So there were like stacks of, of vinyl in their warehouse. He's like, yeah, we're going to be shipping these out next week. I mean, no way. It was awesome to see that. I mean, they're taking complete control over their, their career and they couldn't be happier about it. And they've literally been doing this for 25, 26, 27, I don't mean, know how many years at this point. In, oh, it's been a while, man. Uh, in the intro, I, I mentioned that it took 24 years for them to get a number one record. 24 years. Wow. I mean, they could have given Damn. up so long ago. <laughs> I, I can tell you this. there. I saw them at a place called the Press Club in downtown Sacramento. And I it well, it had to be over 20 years ago because I had to watch them from the outside with my hands on the window looking in because I wasn't old enough to get in. It was a 21 and over club. Oh, wow. Held about 65 to 70 people. And, yeah, me and my buddies, I mean, we were, you know, at that time, we were pretty close to getting a record deal. We were a, a big rock band in Sacramento. <laughs> and we, uh, me and the boys went down and we stood outside the press club and just and just listened from outside because we had heard, I mean, they were legendary in our scene as far as being like a wall of sound. That was always the description. Huh. Clutch is a wall of sound. And we, we literally went down knowing that we couldn't get in. 
just so we could stand outside and feel the building shake from clutch playing. <laughs> awesome. And that, so yeah, that that would have been, God. Uh, well, I, I can't do math, but it would have been a long time ago. It would have been like early, early two thousands, maybe late nineties. Okay, yeah, they started in nineteen ninety one. Yeah, and pretty I, crazy. And I think um, it was and I mean, 95 was the self-titled record that I remember kind of breaking through. And how, how in the heck are are they the same members? Yeah, same band. I mean, they should had be one organist. dude that yeah. just won't give it up, you know? <laughs> but, like, they're the same band. That's what JP said when I was you know, interviewing him. He was like, you know... We we could have given up a long time ago. We're too stubborn. We've been on like four different record labels. We were just too stubborn. We knew we had something, so we we're just going to stick with it. And you know, now they're they have a you know a fulfilling career. It just took two and a half decades to get to that point. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, what, how cool! By Super the way, everyone, inspiring. check out the new album. It just came out this year, and it's called Book of Bad Decisions. Really cool stuff. And you can see, actually, I think it's funny. I was when I was doing the research for this. We, I think we have almost all of the exact same endorsements. He's a Minel guy. He's a Gretsch yeah. guy. Yeah. He's a Vader guy. I don't know what heads he's playing. Evans. But, he um, plays Evans heads. Oh, oh so close. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I really wish I had a chance to, or hope I have a chance to meet him, because I would assume from being in that same scene around the same time, we would have a lot of bands that no one else has heard of, but they were very influential to us growing up. But when you watch him play, the one thing I would say about JP's style is that yes he's a heavy rock just you know solid hitter but there i don't know his history at all but there's something in there that gives him when he plays swing when he does a shuffle it feels legit yeah that's that was the whole crux of why i wanted to talk to him because i felt like there's something something more to his rock drumming more subtlety more nuance more more depth more character Yeah, um, and he, you know, it's in the story, but he basically explained that it's a combination of uh, watching Gene Krupa on PBS, oh, yeah. uh, listening sure. to Black Sabbath, and seeing the correlation between Gene Krupa and heavy metal, and yeah. listening to a lot of go-go music, being from the DC area. Ah, there's there's so you the put swing. Those three things together, yeah. you got heavy, heavy funk, hard-hitting swing. You've got just the insane hard rock approach and you've got the subtlety right. and the nuance of, of jazz and that makes for for me I think of JP as the the prototypical rock drummer doesn't hit super duper yeah. hard he just gets a no, big but powerful sound gets a big sound um, but a lot of people that are playing his grooves because I watched a lot of his live drumming I, I love albums are great for me but I love seeing some drum cam footage I want to see how you play mm-hmm. um, are you stoic or do you actually get into it but he plays a lot of stuff, like some nuances that most rock drummers would say, ah, no one's going to hear it anyways. Yeah. Why do it? But you just kind of look, it's like, oh, there was a ghost note after that backbeat. Yeah. There's no way anyone in that crowd heard that. <laughs> but he's doing it because it makes it feel the way that it feels when he plays. Yeah, and he does a lot and, of subtle I transcribed some of the beats. It's in the story if you haven't seen it. But you can't try transcribe some of this stuff. He'll do, he'll do crush you know, buzzes for ghost uh-huh. notes, or he'll do open diddles within the same groove, within the same measure of the groove, and you know wow. it's deliberate. He's he wants a certain sound right. for a certain effect, and you can go kind of go, you can kind of gloss over like, yeah, he's playing like a a ghost note <sighs> double or something, but that one's actually a buzz, and that one's actually two notes in a triplet feel wow. or something. 
real subtle. I'd love that stuff. For me, that's the stuff that makes me keep listening to a band over and over again. You're like, right. oh, I hear he, every time. the bass drum pattern changes every fourth bar. I didn't hear that on the first ten listens yeah. or something. Now, do we have any audio of JP that we can drop in? Yeah, we got some stuff. I don't. We're going to drop in. I think there's some footage of him in the studio with Vance Powell, who did the new record. Uh, so we'll drop in some of that. So the new record is them working with Vance Powell, who uh, legendary producer, most famously White Stripes, Jack White, Chris Stapleton. Um, and there's one interview with Vance that I thought was awesome, where he when he got the gig to produce the new Clutch record. That was like the cool card. All of his friends like thought he was cool now because he got to produce a, a clutch. No record. way! And the dude has even though Jack he'd White. already done. It. Yeah, <laughs> Chris Stapleton. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I will say that before we get to the audio, I really enjoyed that part of the story. That the story almost starts off straight into the recording and producing yep. and. And the fact that they had Vance go out on the road with them so that he could yeah. truly understand who Clutch is, who does that? That yeah. was awesome. Yeah, super cool. He became like a band member for a while, which is awesome. That's really cool. Very cool. All, All right, right, let's, let's give check it a out some Clutch. So that is Clutch's Jean-Paul Gaster, uh, just stud. And definitely read read the story because, like I said, it gives you some real insight into somebody that has been doing this thing that is hard. It's not hard to be a drummer for 24 years. It's hard to keep a band together for 24 years. Yeah, same exact lineup. That's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy and talk. to keep evolving as well. And that's, like I said, mentioning the Deftones and Clutch, I do really appreciate that it's not just putting out the same album over and over and over again um so yeah and, then, and there's just so much talk about gear in this it's it's a really good drum nerd article i really dug it so well done mr dawson thank you and that's what i wanted to do i wanted to show everyone that this guy was much deeper than you might think if you only know him as a rock drummer right goes much awesome deeper. all right well let's talk some uh Drum nerd stuff ourselves, dealing with yeah, the so D-Drum Dio series. We got a trio of snare drums from Dio's, from Dio's, from D-Drum. A trio of time, Dio's series snare drums from D-Drum. From D-Drum. <laughs> Way less Ds, come on. Uh, and I will tell you, before we even start to listen to these, if you would have shown me only pictures... Uh, it would have been a way different thing. I cannot believe the one that I picked as, wow, that drum is amazing. And I think I know which one you're going to pick. So we've got a 6.5 by 14 maple with a like a zebra-striped multicolored finish, which I thought was really cool. That was the one that I, just looking at it, I'm like, I want this drum. It just looks cool. Right. It's gorgeous, yeah. Yeah. And then they also sent a 6.5 by 14 hammered bronze and then a 7 by 14 cast steel. All of them had die-cast hoops, so they basically were all set up the same with tube lugs, die-cast hoops, um, the D-drum heads made by Evans, which I think were just single-ply coated, um, you know, kind of standard. But they were these are this is a good series of drums if you if you want something that just sounds awesome and doesn't cost a ton of money. The right. the maple was my favorite for a few different reasons. Um, Mainly when I tuned it really high. It just had something. It's an eight-ply yeah. eight maple shell. 
Um, and it just was fun. It just had a lot of crack. And to it, it was interesting too how that I think on that one that's the one where they have the thirty degree bearing edges on top and then forty five on the bottom, right? So it's got like yep thirty degree um, on top, yep forty and forty sharp forty five on the bottom. So yeah, and if you guys don't know what that's doing is when you're rounding out a bearing edge, that's allowing more of the shell to contact the drum head, which is almost in essence like having one little piece of tape on the head or something. It's 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 just warming up the sound. So if you want the most sharp attacking drum ever, sharp bearing edges are a great way to go. But if you want a little bit more of that warmth, it's great to have the 30-degree bearing edge or a full roundover. Now, what's cool about this is you've got the 45-degree on the bottom, which is then going to make it a little more sensitive. So you're getting the sensitivity of almost almost like a metal drum, but you're also getting the warmth from that 30-degree edge on top. So it's really cool. Yeah, nice kind of all-purpose drum. Again, I thought it was most appropriate in kind of a Kraken higher tuning. Yeah. Uh, you want to check it out? Yeah. Yeah, it just sounds like a drum. And the one thing that especially our listeners that have only been playing for a few years need to understand is every drum on the planet, well, most, sound good with with a few pieces of gel. Mike always does these wide open and as natural as possible so you can hear the actual timbre of the drum. So just know that there's a lot of tone. He could <laughs> he could sell you any drum in the world by putting two gels on it, and then you go, "It's the best drum ever." And it's like, well, that's what they all sound like. <laughs> yeah. It's important to hear the drum wide open because we know that we can make it sound great with gels. Yeah, and this was this was. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of plywood drums, but this one was just fun. It had something. It was giving me something physically in return. When it, the harder I hit cool. it, the more fun it was. Uh, nice. So the next one was a six and a half by fourteen. Oh, sorry. Go yeah, ahead. six and a half by fourteen hammered bronze. This is a heavy one point five millimeter bronze shell with tons of dents in it. It looks like someone just smashed it <laughs> with golf balls for a couple months. Okay. Uh, so I've talked to Gretch about this, but I just want to get your take on it. Is the whole thought of hammering a shell because Ludwig does it, Gretch does it, D Drum does it, a lot of people do it. Is the whole thought that it will break up some of the reflections and make it a little flatter or what is the idea you know i've heard different theories that it yeah it kind of refracts the reflection so it makes it okay maybe a little less resonant but i don't hear it i think it's more of aesthetics than anything else okay because this thing was singing yeah it wasn't like dead i'm pretty sure it's just it's aesthetics but i could be wrong i could be proven wrong if someone would show me here's a drum with a straight shell and here's a drum with a bunch of dents in right it. sure uh, but this was like the, for me, this was the kind of mid-range studio drum where you want a lot of tone. You want it to be open and just kind of ring out. Right. Um, that's where I like this one best. I'm thinking like mid-tempo kind of studio stuff or rock, mid-tempo right. rock. Another good drum. They all were very sensitive. They're all consistently sensitive and and powerful. All three. Nice. Well, let's give it a listen.
Yeah, I mean, there's you can hear there's so much tone in that. Uh, yeah, I would definitely tape it down, regardless of any situation. But to know right. that it has all of that there, it's it was cool. Yeah, and the, another thing that we don't really talk about because we are kind of in this Instagram world of drumming right now is that a lot of that tone gets eaten up by your bandmates and stuff. So sometimes you you actually want it, but you don't hear it the way we're hearing it right now when yeah. it's all by itself. And I've so. got I've got three microphones on the snare drum, and one of them is a pencil condenser, so it's capturing every nuance of of tone right. and resonance. You get you get ten feet away from that drum, and a lot of those overtones just just disappear. Right. Yeah. Anyway. All right, and then our our third drum is the seven by fourteen cast steel, which is the one I think you you probably like the best. I couldn't believe it. I'm not a fan <laughs> of steel. I don't like chromy chrome drums. <laughs> yeah. I sure as hell don't want a seven inch deep snare. But damn, it's seventeen pounds. Yeah, it's a beast. It's got a three millimeter shell, straight shell with no flanges or anything at the top. Um, you know, mirror chrome. I mean, this is as powerhouse as it gets. But I was surprised that it doesn't have any weird steelness to it. It just sounds really. It sounds like a session drum, man. Yeah, I mean, I think being cast probably helps that. Sure, um, the die cast hoops help that. This was a drum where I feel like I couldn't hit it too hard, but that didn't make it a one-trick pony either. You know, it, it kind of did everything, and I think it's, you know, that's the reason why bell brass is so popular. I think the cast shells can do a lot more than you think, uh, whether it's steel or aluminum or um, this bronze or whatever. So anyway, let's check out this yeah. steel drum. This was, if I was in clutch, this is probably the drum I would use. Totally. That's it. So three yeah, awesome drums. Fantastic. That none of them are priced at any any level where you would. I don't think you would really second guess it. The maple is five hundred bucks. The hammered bronze is five nineteen. The cast steel is five seventy nine. That's awesome. Hard to argue against, especially with diecast hoops and, and all of that. So nice. check them out. There's Very full cool. videos on bottomdrummer.com if you want to check out the whole tuning range. Um, definitely go to the drum site. Hopefully, one of your dealers has one. If you can check it out. So, if I had to awesome. pick one, I would I would want to own the Maple just for me. But if I was only going to use one of these for everything, it would be that cast steel. Crazy. Yeah, that was amazing. I mean, that really threw me for a loop. So, I only pressed play just so that I could talk trash about it. And then, <laughs> nope, <laughs> nope, I was way off. It sounds fantastic. All right, let's get into listener questions. All right, our first listener question is from Steve Steve Smith in Sacramento. Hey, I think I've given him a lesson. Cool. Is it ever okay for your hands, elbows, or forearms to be touching your thighs, torso, or any part of your upper body while playing the kit? Well, okay makes it seem like you're going to get in trouble. Go to yeah. the principal's office. It's okay to do anything you want, but I, I, when I, let's think of it like this. Not like who we are as players, because we all have our own tics, but as a teacher... When you see your student, after every backbeat, rest their forearms on their thigh, do you stop it from happening? That's a good question. I think if you would ask me that 15 years ago, I would say absolutely. I think today I'm a little less 
I'm a little less hesitant to correct physical things until they can actually play the stuff, <laughs> you know. Right. Like even yeah, with yeah. their grip, I'm like, eh, if your pinkies are sticking out, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna harp on it until you can actually play what I'm asking you to play. But in general, I do have a student who, who would just kind of hit his punch his thigh. Right. So I was just telling him, like, you know, you, you probably should raise your forearm just a little bit <laughs> so you don't yeah, do yeah. that. Or, or change the height of your throne so your legs point down a little bit more. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I for me, it's something where when it, I change anything that interferes with your drumming. When I hear people's backbeats being late because they always hit their thigh first and then their stick falls down, mm. I change what they're doing. Or I ask them to, or at least I explain to them, hey, you're going to do what you're going to do. I'm telling you, this is why this is happening um, I'm also telling you this is why you come home with bruises at night. <laughs> it's not because you're mixed up into some bad fight club stuff. It's because you're punching yourself every time you play two and four. <laughs> so those, you know, I, I'm looking for anything that throws off your sound. That's all that really matters. I could be me. wrong, but I think Kenny Arnoff at one point was wearing like a pad under his jeans because the way he plays, he's literally karate chopping his leg. Like all night yeah, man. <laughs> Well, dude, do you remember, like, I don't know if you saw, I don't know if it was for every tour, but I remember having the Synchronicity Tour videotape, and Stuart had, like, a full pad taped to the side of his snare from where, because he wore those, like, oh, we wear short yeah. shorts. Like, you know, he had, like, the legs apart. <laughs> yeah. It was like, you want to see my thighs? You can see my thighs. Those were short shorts, Stuart. But, uh, oh, but yeah, he had uh, that pad on the side of his snare. So, if it, if it gets in the way of your sound, I'll call you out on it, and I'll, I'll at least tell you why I think um, it's wrong and how you could fix it. If not, all good. All right, next question is from Dominic. I'm wondering what tips you have for picking out odd time signatures. I love listening to stuff like Snarky Puppy and practicing picking out the time signatures, but I'm sort of new to it, especially when it's anything beyond 3, 4, and 6, 8. Okay. So step one would be what? For me, step one is identify the bottom number. So I don't care. The subdivision? Yes. Okay. So I tap my foot. And so to me, the top number is how high to count. Bottom number is how fast to count. So I tap my foot in what I perceive to be quarter notes. If I'm locked, cool. Most likely the bottom number is four. Now I just have to find out how many of these are there before the cycle starts over. If I feel like I'm with it, then I'm against it. Then I'm with it. Then I'm against it, which is really when we notice, oh, something's wrong here. That's when I double the speed of my tapping, whether it's my hands or my foot. And that tells me the bottom number is probably eight. Mm. Pretty rare that the bottom number is 16. But if the tempo is slow enough, obviously it could be. But for a lot of the stuff, we're going to be in bottom number of four or bottom number of eight, maybe 16. Once I've identified that, like I said, now I know what we're counting. I just don't know how many of them there are. And then I just start cycling through and... Really, I mean, I'll count to seven. Usually you can hear the one. I think the only problems that, that arise are when you can't hear it start over. Mm. That's when it gets really hard. You're like, well, I don't even know where the one is, so I can't figure out what time signature it's in. Um, but if I can hear, like, okay, the baseline just started. Baseline just started. I'll count to seven, and it's probably either more or less of those. So I'm like, if it's not seven, it's probably five, because I know it's not six. We would have felt that right away. And then I go to nine and up from there. Now, here's a question I have for you are you one of those guys that feels everything that's in odd time in groups of two and three yes uh okay because I, I think that's actually a really good question that i've been recently kind of 
analyzing what I do. I don't, once we get above three and five, I kind of stop counting the totality. It's more like, what is the cycle? Is it two twos and a three and another two? Or like, I just start to feel the larger cycle. Okay. It could be nine. It could be 13. It could be 11. It doesn't matter. Right. I'm just like, where does the three fall into the phrase? It's usually a bunch of twos with a three thrown in. And where does the right. three happen and how many twos? So yeah, I would say unless it's five, three, five, seven, anything else, and it's just a combination. How long, how long are you actually counting? I mean, are you, is your goal to eventually not be counting and just feel? Yeah, I try to do that yeah. as quickly as possible, which is another reason why I do so much loop practice because I can create odd time loops that I don't even know what they are, but I can memorize the 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 shape of the paw of the phrase, and then I just sure. I'm locked in. I can sing the, the line, whatever it is, the melody, the bass line, the the chord rhythm, and right. I don't even have to know what the actual time signature is. That's ultimately where I want to go with it. Yeah. yeah, as soon as I start in my brain starts saying numbers, then I'm not making music anymore. Of course, yeah. I mean, my my goal definitely is as quickly as possible to eliminate. I never want to be going one two three four five six seven one two three four mm. while I'm playing drum set. Um, I still, if if I was playing a time signature where I relied on the song to give me the feel, like let's say I was playing, I hung my head by Sting. Mm-hmm. You've got one two three four five six seven eight nine one two three four five six seven eight nine. If I was playing that. I'm all good with the song, but if they dropped out and said, take a 16 bar solo, I'd have to count. Mm-hmm. There's no, I mean, I or I'd be shouting that bass line and my drumming would be shaped by it. But if I really had to improvise, I, I kind of have to count by myself. Um, that's why I love vamps. Yeah, exactly. You're like, I got it. We're good. <laughs> We're all good. So Yeah, yeah I like that cool. because then you can, you can also take more risks because you can kind of, of course. You can hear the how it resolves and you can learn you can push yourself like when you can play if, around it yeah if i keep going with this thing that i know doesn't fit but if right. i can, oh, if I can the best. keep perspective on where the vamp resolves then i can i can sound like a yeah. genius until you listen back and you're like oh that was a five bar yeah. phrase not a four bar phrase but. right yeah yeah that, that can be a little tough <laughs> but yeah i mean taking a uh, you know grooving of three sixteenth notes and going over that bar if it's in seven eight i mean that's fun yeah just keep going but as long as you know where you are in the total thing so all right great how about one more question one more question this one is for you not for me because i don't have any experience with this from roberto do you have any opinions on the panasonic lumix g7 i guess that's a video camera uh for starting a a youtube channel um it'd be mostly for drums but i may also do product reviews and band performances Okay, so the Lumix GX, uh, G7, not GX7, it's a mirrorless camera, so it's going to be smaller. And it's a 4K camera, but there's some things you need to look out for. You're looking, you're looking at a $500 camera. There's a reason they make $1,000 cameras and $1,500 camera bodies like the GH5, $2,000 camera bodies like the GH5S, um, and they are just about to release their newest one. I can't remember if it's called a G9. Anyways... <clears throat> So here's what you're going to get with this camera. For $500, you're going to get a 4K camera with a 14 to 42 millimeter lens. Now, that's really important right now because 14 is really wide. It's almost fisheye wide, except for you're putting it on a micro four-thirds sensor, which is going to really zoom it in a lot. Now, your widest angle now is going to be about a 35. When you go to 4K, it's going to crop it more, almost to about a 50. So... My only hesitation with this camera, 
for that is the fact that no matter how wide of a lens you throw on it, you're still going to be cropped in pretty close. So you need to have a pretty decent-sized room. Otherwise, you'll never be able to fit the whole drum set into your shot. So think about that. The other thing is a really low megapixel, 16 megapixels. If you're going to be shooting any pictures with it, it's not that it's terrible. I mean, it's better than a phone, but it's not great. Uh, So that's something to think about. Other than that, uh, it is interchangeable lenses, so that's great. You could get a bigger or a a wider lens. Uh, You could get like a a 10 to 20, and that would get you a little more distance. And honestly, a lot of people are still shooting in 1080p, and this camera does shoot in 1080p. So you could do all of your video reviews in 1080p. And it won't be cropped too bad. Um, other than that, I think it's a decent camera. It's And it'd be a great way to learn about cameras. And Panasonic, the Lumix line, is a great line of cameras. The other thing to think about, if you're going to be in the shots a lot, Panasonic is not really great compared to the new Fujifilm stuff and definitely Canon at color science with human beings. So if you're only shooting your kit and product stuff, you're going to be fine. But if you're going to be talking to the camera, you're going to have to do a lot of post-processing to get your skin to look kind of normal uh, compared to Canon's color science or the new Fujifilm cameras. So good camera, but um, also what I would encourage you is see if you can find a Panasonic GH5. If you like Panasonic the most, check out a Panasonic GH5. Uh, used, you might be able to get a body pretty cheap for that, and then definitely check check out the Canon M50. I just got to use one of those. That is their rival to this. I got to use one of those while I was in Bath. Uh, Kim Lee, the guy that brought me in, he had the M50. I was actually thinking about switching to it for my travel vlogging camera. Has a flip out LCD, awesome, so you can see yourself. Um, shoots in 4K. It is the rival to this, but better color science, and most importantly. When you're talking to the camera, the uh, the autofocus is unbelievable on Canon. So uh, those are things to think about. Hope that helps, man. Cool. I got zero input on that, so let's get to picks of the week. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. One year ago, I would have been like, I have no idea. The only thing I was, all kept I, running to my head was, well, what about the audio? That's all I care about is would you ever okay. want to use the audio from that camera? No, but this does have a hot shoe mount. So that's that little mount on the top for flashes and stuff. And I have uh, one of my picks of the week a while ago was the, I just got a new one because I broke mine, uh, the Audio-Technica mic that sits on the top of the camera. Mm -hmm. This camera will accept that. Oh, okay. There you go. So you could actually have a nice stereo mic on top of that and and be done. This would be an awesome vlogging camera. Um, So definitely something to consider for sure. All right. So pick of the week is actually a microphone. I'm going with the Audio-Technica AT2035. I just got this. I just called Audio-Technica and asked for this because it's an amazing microphone, but it's really affordable. So if you guys don't know, the Audio-Technica AT2020, that's like their industry standard $99 microphone that you could mic a kit with from an overhead perspective. You could do a podcast with it. It's it's just a affordable mic that you can kind of do anything with. Well, they kind of re they put out like the Audio Technica 2020 Plus, which is the 2035. So a little bit um, better microphone overall as far as sound, but it has a higher SPL than the 2020, which makes it better for drumming. SPL stands for sound pressure level. How much sound can it take? How many decibels can it take? But it also has a 10 dB pad, which the other one doesn't have. 
It also has a low cut or a high pass filter at 80 hertz in case there's too much humming and buzzing going on from the low end. And it comes with a shock mount. So, and it's, I think, maybe $40 more. So for $140, this is a pretty amazing mic. I don't want to talk too much about it right now because I think we're going to do it maybe next week or the week after as uh, our gear review. And I'm going to record my kit with no bass drum mic, just this as the overhead. And I'll do it with and without EQ and compression so you guys can hear what this thing can do. But for that price, for $140, it's an amazing microphone. All right, so my pick is the, well, I guess I could pick any brand, but I mentioned it earlier about the jingle snares, the little tiny yeah. little things. Looking online, it looks like Toka kind of has the biggest presence, but I'm not sure they're completely available. Anyway, there's there's a bunch of different brands. So I have the 10-inch version. One is made by Dixon, and the other one, the Dixon one has four rows of jingles, and the Toka one has two. I think... Uh, you should probably check them out. They're like you can get them for like 125 bucks. It's essentially a like a wooden timbale with snare wires that push up against the bottom of the head. Super fun, and and I've, I'm able to get like that real tight kind of Roland 808 snare sound out of it. I'm also able to you know loosen the head up and put a bunch of tape on it, and it kind of sounds like an African talking drum if you have the snares just nice. rattle. Really kind of versatile, so I used it in that that track that we played earlier. I've used it on a bunch of other things. It's also just a fun side snare because you can get one of those Gibraltar like splash arm type things, just mount it right off your hi hat stand. So it takes up almost no space whatsoever. So check awesome. them out. I, I think the Toka ones are still available. LP had them at one point. Dixon has them. I just called a jingle snare, ten inch jingle snare. There's also twelve inch ones I've used, which are also cool, but I like the ten best. Boom. All right. Well, everybody, please keep sending in your questions to mdinfo at moderndrummer.com. Hope you guys enjoy enjoyed this podcast. If you do, please give us a rating and review over at iTunes. And now it's time for some outro sauce. All right. This is Spencer. He's got um, a, a Gretsch Brooklyn kit with a 24-inch bass drum, a Pearl Omar Hakim signature snare, which is an African Ooh. mahogany 13-inch drum. I love that snare. Beautiful. I used to have that. 15-inch Pisces Giant Beat Hi-Hats, uh, Sabian Crash. So here it is. Let's check it out. This is Spencer. So that's Later, it. buddy. Episode 161. <laughs> All right. In the can. All right. See ya. Later, bro. <laughs>